Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. We did it. Europe is strong. Europe is united. We have reached a deal on the recovery package and the European budget, a marathon which ended in success for all 27 member states, but especially for the people. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And just in case you didn't get the message first time, we have reached a deal. We have a deal. In the wee hours of Tuesday morning, 5.30am to be exact, after going into a fifth day of negotiations, EU leaders struck an agreement on a 1.82 trillion euro financial package. Now, we said we'd bring you a special episode if they struck a deal, but we didn't quite expect them to go on for five days. So we thought it would be better to grab some sleep, let the dust settle, and then give you a more considered view, which is what we'll try to do today. We'll walk through the deal itself, examine the fudges, the key compromises, you know, the deals that were done within the deal to get to the final agreement. And we'll also give you a behind the scenes look at the summit and our reporting. And to help me do that, we've gathered together some of the political team who covered every moment of the summit day and night via our live blog. So, hi to Reem Montaz in Paris. Bonjour, bonsoir, or whatever day it is or time of day, I still haven't yeah. recovered. <laughs> yeah, we all we all lost track. Uh, our uh, lead reporter on the EU budget, uh, who also covers rule of law for us, who is doubly valuable, therefore, for us today, Lily Beyer. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. And our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hey there. Uh, Matt is uh, on holiday, so we we missed that ray of sunshine, but we will try and inject a little bit into the conversation as we as we go along. So let me just start with the with the basics for people who who maybe weren't following this uh, super closely. Uh, the leaders agreed at a summit which was actually only meant to last two days, but ended up uh, going into five on this overall package worth about one point eight two trillion. Euros uh, breaking down into a recovery fund of 750 billion euros, uh, which will be funded by the European Commission borrowing on the markets and then distributing 390 billion euros in grants and 360 billion euros in loans. Uh, This is all related to the coronavirus or should be, and in terms of of helping countries, sectors, regions uh, recover from the economic shock caused by the crisis. And then there's the the regular, the core, if you like, or as I saw it described somewhere, the classical EU budget. It's even got its own branding now, the kind of classic bit of the EU budget, 1.074 trillion, had to check that, 1.074 trillion over seven years. And, you know, I think maybe one of the first things to say is this was a very uh, strange summit to cover 
uh, right, David? I mean, you're one of our, our veterans of covering these things. And just so much about it was different from you, usual. Can you just give us a flavour of of the kind of measures that were taken and, and how this summit was so different from the others? Well, it really was extraordinary, right, to bring together uh, all of these leaders who normally travel with very big delegations with a pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, still raging uh, all across the world. And obviously, uh, very acute concerns that uh, leaders would be putting themselves at risk. This was the first big gathering. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel, for instance, had rebuffed uh, U.S. President Donald Trump about holding a G7 summit in person. But this was so important to Europe's future that they knew they had to be together. They had to get into a room, but they made sure it was a much bigger room than usual. They used a a special room, Room 5, built for 330-odd people, and in fact was limited then to 31, uh, the 27 heads of state and government, and the select others uh, who had to come in, the heads of the institutions, uh, one guest if they needed to at a time. But uh, you saw leaders arrive with face masks, you saw um, them bumping elbows and uh, avoiding handshakes, lots of hand sanitizer, and uh, maybe the signature of it, uh, Council President Charles Michel, who was presiding over the negotiations, doing most of his small group uh, and one-on-one meetings on his terrace, uh, outdoors. So we had a lot of images of leaders gathered around a a sort of uh, terrace picnic table there as they worked through the hardest uh, points in this negotiation. Right. It was really quite strange. Much smaller delegations than usual for the And no reporters. No reporters, right. Surely, I can't believe we missed out the most important thing. No reporters on the scene. So we we all kind of covered this virtually, right, from home, pretty much, which was also strange. And we have a a very brief clip, maybe sums it up. Uh, One of the leaders was coming in. We heard uh, somebody say, possibly him, possibly one of the others, say, it's a new reality. It's a new reality as they walk into this largely empty building to stand in front of a few cameras and take off the mask. But let's set up the the summit now just with a couple. So this, we have to cast our minds back. I believe this was Friday morning uh, when things began and uh, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen kind of set up what, what she thought was at stake with this summit. So we are at the beginning of the summit now and the stakes couldn't be higher. If we do it right, we can overcome this crisis stronger and emerge stronger from the crisis. All the necessary pieces are on the table and a solution is possible. And the solution, that is what our people in Europe expect from us, because it's their jobs that are at stake. And the risk of the virus still persists. And the whole world is watching us, whether Europe is able to stand up united and to overcome this corona-related crisis strongly with the convincing... Okay, so we get a sense there that she's really, you know, setting this up as as almost a summit that's too big to fail. And somebody who was really at the centre of this summit, uh, the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, at the beginning, laid out some of the key issues, the big sticking points they were going to have to resolve. There are many issues on the table. One, of course, is the, is the, is the, is the mix of grants and loans. Another one is the uh, MFF itself and how to make sure that the uh, net payers are not, uh, at the end of the day, uh, have a position which is uh, much worse than they already have. And of course, there's this issue of the reforms and, um, and making sure that the economies become more resilient. And there is a reason for all of this. And that is the fact. So that Mark Rutte setting out, you know, what were the kind of key issues for him, which did really become key issues, you know, in the summit. And, and after two days, when the summit was meant to end, we didn't really seem to have 
a lot of progress in any of those. Lily, can you kind of cast your mind back to Saturday evening or, uh, you know, when things were meant to end and kind of sum up the state of play at that point? I think much of the summit felt like a roller coaster. So um, Charles Michel had put forward a series of compromise proposals and they kept going back and back through the wording. There were two really big issues. The one was the balance between grants and loans within this $750 billion recovery fund, with the Frugals, led by Mark Rutte, really pushing to push down the amount of grants from the originally proposed $500 billion. And then there was the issue of the governance, where Rutte was really pushing for this idea that one member state should be allowed to veto the disbursement of recovery money to another member state if they felt like reforms uh, did not go far enough as promised. And these two issues really dominated the first few days. And for a while, it felt like the two sides were just not getting any closer to one another. Right. It really did feel like that. And we have a clip of, the, if you like, one of the kind of the antagonist, if you like, of Ruta and the, and the frugal faction, uh, Italian Prime Minister uh, Giuseppe Conte, you know, obviously his country hit uh, harder than any other by the coronavirus, certainly in economic terms, if you look at the forecasts uh, for this year. And, um, you know, obviously very keen for this money to be flowing, to be flowing quickly and not to uh, have any country able to to block that or impose its kind of economic vision on, on his country. And we got a flavour of, of how things were going. And this was kind of typical of how we were covering this summit. He did a kind of a video message on his Facebook page where he summed up where things were. And we can hear a bit of that now. Siamo in una fase di stallo, si sta diventando molto complicato, più complicato del previsto. And I think even, uh, I'll just talk over a little bit of this to say, even if you don't understand this Italian, I think you can get the, the sense of it. He's saying that things are stalled and things are proving very complicated, even more complicated than expected. So that is uh, where we are on Saturday night. And Reem, I wonder if you can also just kind of cast your, your mind back to then. And I seem to remember that Emmanuel Macron was trying to kind of you know, ramp up the pressure in a couple of different ways uh, at that time. So Saturday was uh, a very high intensity and tension sort of evening and night. Around, I think it was 5 or 6 p.m., I get a message from a very good source that lets me know that basically things had gotten so, as the source was saying, unconstructive, and they were going nowhere, that Macron had decided to ask his protocol to prep his plane to leave at 11.30pm. Bear in mind, at that point, we are definitely not anywhere near the end of the summit. And he's clearly basically threatening to walk out because he feels like the frugals, so the Netherlands in particular, but also Austria, but also Sweden to a certain extent, but also Denmark, are not really playing the game in good faith. Then the summit ends and we start seeing these leaders come out, but we don't see Macron or Merkel or any of the frugals leave. And then we discover that they actually had a smaller meeting, just them, of course, with Charles Michel, to try to hash things out. And then 
Another kind of dramatic scene where we're told by multiple sources that once they sat down and they started talking again in this meeting, again, there was a feeling that things were going nowhere and they weren't being constructive. So Macron gets up and Merkel gets up and they both leave. And, you know, him and Merkel basically walk back to the hotel because they stay in the same hotel. This is 1.30 in the morning, keep in mind. We get news that actually they're having a drink at the hotel bar, that Conte has joined them, that von der Leyen has joined them, and they spend an hour and a half. So at this point, it's three in the morning. Uh, some were saying Macron and Merkel may just decide to leave after these drinks. Others were saying, nope, Merkel is definitely staying. She is not walking out of this summit. So, you know, we're, we're sitting here trying to figure out, okay, what's reliable, what isn't. In the end, they clearly decided to go the next morning. So the plenary was supposed to reconvene at noon on Sunday, preceded by a meeting with Charles Michel at 9.30. And all we were told is that Macron will go to the 9.30 a.m. meeting with Michel, and then we'll see. And, and you know, it's um, when you're covering such a summit with such high stakes, I don't think you can sort of exaggerate just how crazy it is to be told that, you know, one of the most important players of the summit might just say, eh, this is not going to work out. Let's try again another time. I'm leaving. Right. I mean, he, there was definitely, uh, you know, a, a dramatic element to this. And, and of course, you know, part of these events is there's a certain kind of choreography and, and there's a kind of theatre that, that goes along with it. And Macron was certainly very into the, the theatrical uh, part, I think it's fair to say. So then, as, as you say, Reem, that, that turns into a very uh, late night. And interestingly, the next morning then, Angela Merkel faces the cameras and gives a short statement. Ob es zu einer Lösung kommt, kann ich nach wie vor nicht sagen. Es gibt viel guten Willen, aber es gibt auch viele Positionen und so werde ich mich mit dafür einsetzen, aber es kann auch sein, dass es heute zu keinem Ergebnis kommt. What's very interesting there is this is the beginning of, of day three and she's basically raising the prospect that this just might not be doable, that uh, it can't happen. And there's obviously uh, an element here of, of the world watching, of the financial markets watching and, and what the complications uh, might be if a deal is not reached. We had an intervention on the Sunday, surprise intervention from Christine Lagarde, the um, uh, European Central Bank president, who's not at the summit, but chooses to answer some questions from Reuters news agency, kind of saying, it's really important they get a good deal. So trying to kind of tell people, take your time, you know, get something as close to the European Commission's proposal as you can, which is uh, kind of quite extraordinary in itself. So things go on and on. And let's hear Ursula von der Leyen a bit further down the line. This is coming into day four. So after three uh, days and three nights of a negotiation marathon, we're entering now in the crucial phase. But I have the impression that uh, European leaders really want uh, an agreement. They show the clear will to find a solution, and uh, we need a solution. The European um, citizens... To give you a little bit of context, Andrew, for that clip on von der Leyen, we're going to share a little bit of, of exclusive political reporting here that isn't out yet. Why does Ursula von der Leyen stand up at that point and say that leaders really want a deal? Because on Sunday night, when in fact it seems the chef didn't expect them to stay for dinner, they were given some sort of cold plate, they were at a lock. That fight over grants and loans had gotten nowhere. And Charles Michel, who had been promising all day long he would have a new proposal out there, he actually went in front of the leaders and said, look, I've got a proposal. I've got a new 
plan. He said, but I can't put it in front of you because you are just too far apart. We've got the frugals who just won't move, and they're at this number, and I've got the rest of you who would reject if I put in, you know, the, the frugal proposal out there. The, the rest of you will reject that. If I put your proposal out there, the, the frugals are going to reject it. So we're at an impasse. This is going nowhere. So what do you want to do? Do you want to call it off? And it was an extremely tense moment where apparently the uh, Swedish prime minister steps in and says, no, no, I think, he's of course one of the frugals, uh, Lofkin steps in and says, no, no, I think we should keep working. And there was that breakthrough moment where they decided, okay, they needed to keep talking. Of course, they would continue talking all through that Sunday night, not around drinks at the hotel, but those frugals back and forth again, trying to ultimately get to where they did, which was a $390 billion compromise on the, on the grants. But at that moment on Monday, what Ursula von der Leyen knows that, that we didn't know at the time was that they had really hit this make or break moment where Michelle was asking the leaders, do you want to do this or not? Because if somebody doesn't move, I've got to just call this off. And at that point, again, there was a lot of push to get back into smaller group meetings. And he was very forceful saying, no, no, I need to hear it in front of everybody. You know, you frugals, especially who are holding this up. Are you willing to work toward a deal? And at that point, they said yes. So, you know, we know they did come to, if we skip forward a little bit and, um, you know, we heard uh, Charles Michel's soundbite at the top with the, we got a deal, good news for Europe. But if we look into that, that deal in detail after that impasse was, was resolved, how did they manage to do it? What's the kind of, what are the key compromises here, for example, on governance? And of course, a lot of this is, is dressed up in language that is not super easy for the, um, you know, the average reader to understand. I'll read a short section of the part on governance. In other words, the rules around when money may be paid out from the recovery fund. If the matter was referred to the European Council, no commission decision concerning the satisfactory fulfilment of the milestones and targets and on the approval of payments will be taken until the next European Council has exhaustively discussed the matter. This process shall, as a rule, not take longer than three months after the Commission has asked the Economic and Financial Committee for its opinion. This process, as I'm sure you would all expect, will be in line with Article 17 of the Treaty on European Union and Article 317 TFEU, which, as we all know, is the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. Uh, Lily, can you tell us what that means? Well, I, I think the theme here, um, as we'll see with some of the other compromises, like the rule of law, is political fudging. Um, so what Charles Michel and the leaders had to achieve is language that each leader can take back to his or her country and claim as a win. So, for example, here, the key word is exhaustively. And they debated this a lot. And basically, this wording allows uh, someone like Mark Rutte to go back home and say to his voters, listen, um, we will not allow money to be dispersed to member states unless this was exhaustively discussed. And therefore, we won because there will be a lot of oversight over the money that will be handed out. And this also allows uh, Italian and Spanish leaders to go back home and say the Netherlands did not win a veto because we will only be discussing the matter at the European Council. And ultimately, after three months, the European Commission would still be able to disperse the money. So a huge political fudge. And it remains to be seen how this will actually work in practice. 
Right. So we had that compromise on the on the language over governance. We had the compromise on the mix of grants and loans. And then one of the other key sticking points was uh, the rule of law, uh, where Viktor Orban comes into the equation. And uh, he was also not shy about putting out his position, uh, spoke to reporters. I believe this was on Sunday morning. Uh, I don't know what is the personal reason for the Dutch prime minister to hate me or Hungary. But he is attacking so harshly and making very clear that because Hungary, in his opinion, does not respect the rule of law, must be punished financially. That's his position, which is not acceptable because there is no decision about... Okay, so this is the the kind of core of the issue here is the idea that there should be a, a link between payouts from the EU budget and respect for the rule of law and that the EU, particularly the Commission, could step in if it felt like certain criteria were not being upheld in uh, in terms of the rule of law and stop the flow of those funds. Very controversial proposal, but very important to some countries, particularly net payers who wanted to be able to go to their voters and say, listen, we're, don't worry, if people don't live up to EU values, they're not going to get EU money. We've talked about this on the podcast before. It's a particular issue for Poland and Hungary, who are both under this Article 7 disciplinary process, uh, you know, have basically been accused by EU institutions of not upholding uh, EU values. So this is a real key issue at the summit as well. And Lily, uh, I know you did some reporting around not just but what was proposed, but why it was proposed, what we've ended up with. Do you want to kind of give us your your read on it? So there's a lot to unpack here. I think the first thing to really keep in mind is that the EU budget requires unanimity. So basically, Prime Minister Morawiecki of Poland, Prime Minister Orban of Hungary both had to sign off on this deal. And even though countries like Germany, France, Finland and Sweden have for over two years been pushing this idea of linking EU funding to the rule of law, there has long been a realization that this would be incredibly difficult because once you link those two things, you put the whole deal at risk of a veto from Poland and Hungary. So leaders found themselves at a position in the summit uh, of trying to find wording that would be acceptable to both sides and that both sides could, again, take home and, and present as a win. But for the rule of law, what we ended up with was essentially incredibly vague wording which a lot of experts, including law professors, uh, say today that they actually don't quite understand. We've heard people like uh, European Council President Charles Michel and uh, Ursula von der Leyen both claim this as a win in the fight for rule of law. But at the same time, we also heard the governments in Poland and Hungary saying that this is a victory for them and that rule of law has been eliminated from the budget deal. Um, and this is all stemming from the vagueness of the wording. Uh, now it will actually really be up to the council where the details of a new mechanism will be negotiated to see whether this will actually be a real rule of law mechanism with teeth or you know, just another piece of paper that will be disregarded in the future. Right. And I've got the text here. Based on this background, a regime of conditionality to protect the budget and next generation EU, which is what the commission calls the recovery fund, will be introduced 
In this context, the Commission will propose measures in case of breaches for adoption by the Council by qualified majority. The European Council will revert rapidly to this matter or to the matter. And so, you know, as you were saying, Lily, this has been expertly crafted so that everybody can can claim victory. There is talk about a rule of law mechanism. It's very unclear how it would work. And ultimately, that would require further legislation. We're going to have to see what is proposed and what is accepted uh, at the end of the day. So I think we've we've kind of outlined what the main elements of the deal uh, were. Perhaps the other one to mention is that the frugal faction uh, got big rebates or big increases in the rebates. That's their kind of discounts on their payments into the EU budget. And that was, in, if you like, the contours of the deal. So I guess the, the question that we all have to ask ourselves is how big a deal was this? And uh, Emmanuel Macron was quite clear about how big a deal he thinks it was. Le plan de relance fondé sur cette solidarité européenne, c'est un changement historique de notre Europe et de notre zone euro. So clearly for France and for Macron, they've definitely called it a historic day, a historic uh, deal. They were able to get the 27 to agree on uh, moving forward with the 27 countries, the EU, borrowing money, you know, pooling debt together. And that is a big deal. He was saying that this is the biggest, the most important change to the union since the euro. I mean, we just have to kind of take that in and sort of understand what he's saying here. Um, and it was interesting because, you know, he held a common press conference with uh, Angela Merkel. But, you know, this has been, this had been a theme throughout uh, this summit, which is that we constantly heard, at least from the French side, that there was perfect cooperation and coordination between Macron and Merkel, that they were doing almost all of their meetings together. It seems to have worked out in the end. They seem to have been able to kind of leverage their their position and, and bring about the changes that, that needed to happen. Obviously, they were working very closely with Charles Michel. And so, you know, no one on the French or German side is saying this is all their work and Charles Michel did none of it. But it's clear that the sort of the Franco-German entente uh, really sort of delivered this time around. And it was interesting because during that press conference at 6 a.m. over Zoom, just so bizarre because we were basically asking these questions to the Tr the German chancellor and the French president, literally from our kitchen tables. You know, I was one of the people who asked, were these concessions too big? Uh, and he said, listen, these concessions were necessary to get the compromise. It was very clear that in his mind, what was more important was to be able to make this deal happen, to be able to get common debt, to be able to set, to get 750 billion uh, in, in a recovery plan, and that he was willing to make the compromises necessary to get there. Yeah, I think there's probably a couple more points. And I guess one is that not everybody is thrilled with uh, all of this, particularly the EU budget part. Uh, let's hear a little bit of Ursula von der Leyen, who obviously hailed the deal historic is very pleased but also has had a little bit to say that's critical as well and here she is from the European Parliament yes. today talking about that. We managed to avoid even further cuts as some member states wanted but this MFF is a difficult pill to swallow and I know this Okay so difficult pill what is what is particularly bitter in this pill particularly for the for the commission and for the European Parliament David? Well, as you say, they had to make quite a lot of cuts uh, to get this deal across the line, and also because this budget always needed to get smaller, given that the United Kingdom had quit the EU, a major budget contributor, leaving a hole of roughly 70 billion euros 
over the seven years of the multiannual financial framework. So going through this, of course, it's much easier to cut programs that are proposed that don't yet exist than taking money out of programs that already have stakeholders and constituents. So even things as important as a big new health initiative, which obviously crucially important in light of the coronavirus pandemic, cut back dramatically. Health will still get a big increase from the last MFF, but not nearly as much as had been proposed. Uh, the members of the European Parliament are upset about cuts to a transition, just transition fund uh, to fight climate change for cuts to uh, research uh, programs. An array of different initiatives that had quite a lot of backing, uh, some of them geared toward what's called modernizing the budget. Uh, Lily knows, uh, knows a lot more about the details here, but moving away from the traditional structural programs, uh, cohesion funds and agricultural funds to uh, digitalization, green programs, uh, things that didn't exist before. And they were very limited in being able to do that. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen obviously sharing her frustration there. We know from her team that they will look to build back up some of the things that have been cut, trying to find ways uh, to get some of those funds back. Uh, the European Parliament does have to approve all this, so it can take a stand here. But given how hard fought this negotiation was, it's not likely they're going to make too many big changes. Right, yeah. And we should say this is not the end of the road. The European Parliament does need to sign off on the, the MFF, the, the budget itself, and will try to extract concessions. And with, there's also a big role for national parliaments. So even though it feels like we've just been through a marathon, there's probably a little bit more uh, of a kind of long distance run to come as well, right? But uh, at this stage, I think uh, we'll leave it for now and obviously follow this in the weeks and months ahead and uh, let all of us have a little bit of a rest before we, we get our heads back around all of this again. Uh, okay, well, uh, Lily and Reem have already had to run off to other engagements, but David has stayed with us to the bitter end. But thanks to everybody. Thanks as ever to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And we'll be back next week with another EU Confidential. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.